one of the interesting things for me is I, I, I personally, like on an existential level, like to deliver product, like to deliver work product. And I don't deliver any work product. I'm like this, this idea of, uh, general management is, is very, uh, it's, it's, it's a step removed. So, you know, on a personal level, I actually do, do a lot of things so that uh, I, I get that fixed. You know, I, I do woodworking. I, I as you know, I, I run races. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, a podcast that brings you insights and tactics from the greatest SaaS minds across the world. The show is brought to you by SaaStock, the conference to turn your SaaS up to 11, returning to Dublin in October 15th to the 17th, 2018. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and on this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show, I speak with Fred Chilmover, CEO and co-founder of Revenue Intelligence Software, Insight Squared. Fred first devised the idea of Insight Squared while doing an MBA at Harvard Business School almost 10 years ago. Surrounded by great minds whose analytic skills fascinated him, he wondered if there was a way to productize this business intelligence knowledge. A summer internship at Salesforce followed, which showed him that even the SaaS behemoth used Microsoft Excel for certain business intelligence analyses. This sealed the determination to put his business intelligence ideas in the cloud and start Insight Squared. To keep it simple, Fred chose to focus only on revenue. He has placed importance and focus in everything he does to this day, including the sole focus on sales in the North American market. Fred is prime example that in order to grow, SaaS founders have to do less. We cover important topics like the process he used at the start to focus on a very specific problem to solve and build a simple product. One of the things that I started on, we started on pretty early on is what are the benefits we would get from narrowing the aperture and making and focusing and actually becoming a subject matter expert in an area? Revenue is the most important thing or it's sort of the, the obviously the biggest question in a business. Why it is so incredibly difficult to say focus? There are a lot of areas that we want to expand to. Um, and one of the biggest challenges for me is uh, sort of managing managing that appetite. It's sort of an exercise in discipline. And how Fred has learned to offset that. As a CEO, you have two kinds of problems. Not enough revenue and every single other problem. Before we get to my conversation with Fred, a quick reminder to drop a review of the SaaS Revolution show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It helps more founders learn from our guests. Now on with the show. Welcome to the, uh, the, the SaaS Revolution show, uh, Fred Schilmover, uh, CEO of Insight Square. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's, uh, it, it's a pleasure, Fred. Uh, actually, we, uh, we recently uh, just sort of met, uh, it was probably just about a month ago in, uh, uh, in uh, ice cold Boston. Uh, and uh, I imagine it's uh, a, a little colder, or, or actually I imagine I, I'm reading that uh, the, the East Coast uh, is uh, uh, pretty uh, chilly right now. Uh, actually, it was above freezing for the first time yesterday oh, wow. in two weeks, so it felt like spring. Okay, very good, very good. Um, so, so Fred, um, you, you know, we won't break from tradition. We always kind of start, you know, I want to get to know you a little bit, sort of look better. So tell us a little bit about, you know, who is uh, Fred Schilmover? Yeah, so uh, I actually started my career in a totally different place. I started in in IT. I had an IT consulting company um, in college and uh, met one of my clients. They were a firm called Bessemer Venture Partners. And one 
consistent theme for me was I enjoy working around really smart people. And when I met them, I thought they were the smartest group of people I've ever interacted with. And I said, I, I have to be a venture capitalist. Um, they didn't have any openings for me in that role. So, uh, you know, I, I convinced them to hire me as their IT guy, uh, became their uh, global head of IT, and then kept writing business plans until they eventually finally let me move over to the investment team. Uh, so a bit of an odd path into venture capital. But as I went through that journey, I realized I actually want to be on the other side of the table. I enjoy uh, the operating side. I love the intellectual pursuit of venture capital, but I love the sort of rubber hits the road of, of being in an operating company. So uh, left Bessemer, uh, went to business school. I knew I wanted to start a software company. It's where my background was. It was where my passion was. Uh, this was right as sort of cloud computing and software as a service was really taking off. Um, Bessemer had published their, you know, laws of, of, of SaaS and laws of cloud computing. So I think they were innovators in the space. And I spent two years in business school learning and, and exploring what kind of a company I wanted to start. So how, how did you come up with uh, Insight Squared then? Um, you, you know, what was the, the problem that you were trying to solve? Why, why, why did you found this company? Yeah, so I had the privilege of working for Salesforce.com for my MBA internship. So I spent three months there working for a gentleman named John Samorjai, who uh, runs corporate development and Salesforce Ventures. And it was amazing just to see the the, the cloud computing, the SaaS market from the vantage point of the industry leader, like understand how they thought about strategy. And, you know, they were at this point, you know, less than, I think, what, $1.62 billion company compared to, you know, 10 plus now. But still, that's a lot of revenue and a lot of resources. And one of the things I realized through the summer is all of the analysis I was doing, all of the work I was doing uh, was still in Excel. And that sort of got me to thinking, like, if this incredibly well-resourced company, uh, obviously innovative, they continue winning, you know, innovation awards, um, great people, so there was no, no lack of, of talent, uh, why, weren't, why wasn't this a problem that they had solved? And that got me thinking about, you know, is there an opportunity to, to do analytics, to do business intelligence, as has been traditionally known, totally differently, sort of born in the cloud? So this was what you're working at Salesforce um, or, you know, as an associate whilst doing an MBA. Uh, why particularly did you, uh, you know, do an MBA if you knew that you wanted to start a software company? Why not just, you know, start the software company? Um, I guess that's kind of, you know, one question. And then, like you, you know, tell us in the audience, um, you know, how the MBA has actually kind of helped you. Uh, uh, in Insight Squared, yeah, and that's that's a that's a question that was posed to me, you know, b before you know before I applied. Like it's it's two years out of the job market. Um, if you if you're passionate about doing something, why not just do it? I think for me in particular, I, I didn't have the typical MBA background, like management consultant, consulting, finance, private equity, banking, one one of these roles, and it actually contributed to the thinking for Insight Squared where I sat around all these people with incredible tool, like incredible backgrounds, incredible toolkits. It's like real analytical horsepower. And these are the types of skills you build even pre-MBA, uh, whether you're in a finance or, or management consulting role. And I didn't, I didn't have that toolkit. And I also learned a lot of things, again, because I didn't, I didn't have the background in finance, accounting, and strategy, and marketing uh, beforehand. And I thought, like, wow, if I had this education back when I was uh, running, running a business, or if I had one of these management consultants sitting on my shoulder helping me make better decisions, 
how much better could I have, could I have built that business? Or, and that got me thinking like most businesses don't have access to that level of resource or that level of sophistication. And even the ones that do, it's, it's a very uh, inefficient user experience to have to hire, you know, McKinsey and, and come in and spend many months doing data analysis for me to tell me, you know, that, you know, I, I could improve my results by, you know, focusing on a particular region or a particular product line and coaching the team better or changing my pricing model. So I thought, is there a way to take that toolkit and apply it more broadly? So I think between my experience in business school and between uh, my experience at Salesforce, that sort of led to the idea behind Insight Squared. Let's get some ideas of like timelines here. So, uh, you know, when was this? When did you found Insight Squared? Yeah, so I, I graduated from business school in 2010 and uh, uh, Decided not to take a job and explore the type of company I wanted to build. Uh, it was really fun. My mother introduced me to all of her friends as her unemployed son. Uh, but I spent sort of the next six months working with a handful of companies, trying to form a deeper opinion on could we productize uh, an offering that would drive value for folks. And what I mean by that, like if if you think about analytics bi bi has been around for 35 years and it's largely been unchanged like still the best bi product and one of the best software products ever ever written is microsoft excel Mm -hmm. uh and most of business intelligence just unlocks those limitations more rows of data relational data the ability to update the ability to share better more visualizations but fundamentally it's this empty empty box or blank page that you look at and um that's really problematic. It's a lot of diseconomies of scale. If you think about, um, if you think about all of these, we focus on sales and revenue operations. If you think about all of these operations folks redoing the same work every time, not at scale. Whether you're at a small, mid-sized, or large company, you don't have the, the amount of scale that we have working with thousands or tens of thousands of sales operations professionals and crowdsourcing the ideas. So that, that was sort of uh, the, the, the root of the thinking. So I spent six months working with a handful of companies uh, forming that opinion of, could I productize something? Could we do something that was different than the way BI had been built? Uh, and even if you think about the new cloud BI companies, they've just mostly picked up on-prem BI, dropped it in the cloud, reprovisioned it, but fundamentally offer this service where they say, whatever data you have, Whatever question you want to answer, we can help you with that. And if you just like peel that back like mathematically, there's no way to avoid the complexity and the, the, the amount of permutations of any data and any question. So one of the things that I started on, we started on pretty early on is what are the benefits we would get from narrowing the aperture and making and focusing and actually becoming a subject matter expert in an area? Um, I think we, we chose pretty well, like re- revenue is the most important thing, or it's sort of the, the obviously the biggest question in a business. So like, I know how much rent we're going to pay this year. I'm pretty, pretty comfortable that I know what our salary expense is going to be, our headcount expense is going to be. So I know the CFO's got that under control. What I didn't know until the 26th day of December was what our bookings were going to be um, in, in Q4. And if I'm honest, I probably didn't know it till the 29th. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I remember I was in uh, one of my mentors is this guy named Bob Brennan. He's most recently the CEO of Viracode acquired by CA for I think 650 million was used to be the uh, CEO of Iron Mountain. And we were in one of these coaching sessions and I was telling him about a bunch of problems I was having, you know, organizationally things I was trying to resolve. And he's like, Fred, like slow down a minute. As a CEO, you have two kinds of problems. 
not enough revenue and every single other problem. So like keep your eye on the ball of, of what you're here to do. So we, we, we sort of chose, I cho- we chose this major of, of sales and we focus all of our efforts on how do we help um, sales organizations drive, drive their decisions in a, in a data-driven fashion. And the, the question I had to answer early on was, did I want to raise capital? Did I want to ask my co-founders to join me and leave their you know, lucrative, high, you know, high opportunity cost positions because we wanted to do things differently? So I spent sort of the, the, the balance of 2010 uh, working in a really inefficient manner, you know, building actually, quite frankly, a ton of spreadsheets that I then handed off to my co-founders uh, as the basis for our initial prototype product. So we launched in uh, January of 2011, so uh, coming uh, right up on seven years. Mm-hmm. So January 2011, you launched. Um, <clears throat> give me an idea of how many people you are now. What is your size seven years later? Uh, how much have you raised? Yeah, so uh, we launched with the three of us. It was me and my two co-founders. Um, uh, we were sitting in, in one tiny office that Bessemer Venture Partners gave us. Uh, we were 17 people when they finally kicked us out. We had someone sitting next to the bathroom. Uh, it was it was not a big enough office for all of us. We're now uh, about 120, 130 people, somewhere in, in that range. Um, we've raised $27 million in venture capital, uh, which is a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, but not a lot of money, I think, compared to uh, what sort of other folks in the market, you know, ostensibly competitors have raised, whether we're talking about, you know, publicly traded companies that we go up against or, or venture back companies that have raised, you know, five to, you know, 50 times the amount of money that we've raised. And yet when you go to places like, you know, G2 crowd um, and look at the ratings, we're four years in a row, number one for customer satisfaction. So I think the approach that we're taking and, and, and the work that the team is doing, something's going right. How did you get your first customers? Was it, was there a, uh, a phone call to John Samajai uh, uh, at, at Salesforce? Uh, uh, are they even a customer? Um, uh, tell us a little bit about that early journey. Yeah, it was actually a really uh, funny and somewhat awkward story. So I was going around Boston and telling anyone who would listen about this business idea that I had. And I met with the CEO of a company called Bullhorn, and his name is Art Pappas. And I start pitching in my idea about this new way to do analytics, new way to do business intelligence. And he stops me five minutes in. He's like, wait, you're not here for the Corp Dev interview? So <laughs> it started off a little bit awkward. But uh, after we realized I wasn't there to interview for a job, he actually introduced me to some of his customers. And he said, look, I, I've got a few customers that are, uh, quite frankly, frustrated with us for the level of analytics that we provide. So even if you totally screw up, you probably can't damage our, our brand that much. Um, and he introduced me to, I think, five or six customers. And, and it saved me from what otherwise I was doing, which is, you know, a lot of cold calling, a lot of uh, customer development with folks that didn't know me. And uh, so that, that really helped uh, with a jumpstart by getting access to a consistent set of customers. That, you know, one of, one of the key things that we do is look for pattern and look for the consistency business to business. It's a lot easier to find pattern and consistency when you're working with a similar cohort of companies. So starting off uh, with Bullhorn customers, or essentially third-party recruiters, staffing agencies, um, really, really helped for us to find that pattern and form the opinion that, oh yeah, we can actually build a product here versus giving people a cloud-based version of Excel to, to futz around with on their own. 
Uh, and as the uh, the founding CEO, um, you, you mentioned there that you, you know you were doing a lot of uh, you know the cold calling and these uh, uh, initial meetings. So is it, is it fair to say that you were leading sales for the first kind of year or two? So a- absolutely. Not only was was it was sort of uh, you know chef, cook, and bottle washer, whatever the the, the term is. I mean, I, I was I was the BDR, I was the account executive, I was the VP of sales, I was customer service. Um, and, and initially, like I helped put together the, the the prototype. I mean, it was still just an Excel spreadsheet, but it was a it was a form of product management engineering. I think it's really healthy for a leader of a company to do that. I think it establishes a common language. So when I handed over this uh, terrible prototype, it wasn't wasn't particularly well done um, to my co-founders. Uh, they were able to go and turn that into a proper proper web based solution. You know. My my co-founder likes to say that uh, likes to say that you know the the most likely reason that software development projects fail is a failure of communication from the sort of the business requirements the people executing the work and by having a prototype versus a conversation or a document uh, to to drive the initial uh, software development really helped. Similarly, you know, because I could say, look, I, I interact with customers. I know what the sales cycle feels like. I think it gives credibility and, again, a common language uh, with our sales team and, and our marketing team and our services team after the fact. So, uh, you know, to the extent that founders are looking for advice, I, I, would, I would highly recommend, especially a CEO, think about doing a tour of duty um, or knowing what the job actually feels like, you know. Earlier in 2017, uh, when we were thinking about changes we were going to make to our BDR program, I actually created a you know a false identity <clears throat> and created a LinkedIn profile and everything, and, and got a Salesforce account and, and you know picked up the phone and did, and did a couple of days of cold calling. Uh, which, by the way, that, that's a tough job. So uh, certainly, uh, sort of help, help me remember the respect that I have for the folks doing prospecting work. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 as an aside, I, I started out my uh, career, you know, in sales and uh, my, my first job uh, selling uh, outsource IT support, I had to make like 100 cold calls a day. And it was, uh, it, it was a pretty tough job. So uh, a lot of empathy for, uh, uh, for, for those guys. So, so when you, uh, so the first couple of years, you're leading the, the sales charge, you know, and more. Uh, and when did you make your like first sales hire? What uh, what role was that? And uh, you know how many uh, how many customers then did you have at that point? Had you managed to bring on board your, yourself? Yeah, so I don't remember the. I mean, it was a handful, maybe a dozen customers that that, that we had at the time. Actually, our first um, sales hire was not a traditional sales hire. He was actually doing his uh, MBA at MIT Sloan. And we, we picked him up for uh, an internship for the summer because we weren't sure yet w- which direction we wanted to head. And at the end of the summer, I said, hey, Jim, I'm sorry, you can't, can't go back to school. <laughs> we, we, we need you full time. And I think there was, a, there was a good learning there as well where um, there's this uh, article or paper called the Renaissance Sales Rep. I'm sure you've seen it before that talks about the, the person that you need in the beginning when you don't really have, you don't really know, you know, you're still working on the product, you're still working on the pitch and you need someone who's uh, incredibly flexible and dynamic and actually someone with a man, he had a management consulting background, someone with a management consulting background, I think fit the bill there uh, really well. Uh, as we as we scaled and, and and started figuring out, okay, how do we operationalize? How we do we create processes? How do we create consistency? Hiring all that, 
um, we ended up, you know, building a sales team and, and hiring a sales leader uh, with, with those strengths. Now, that's not to say, you know, every hire we've had has been has been successful. We've had fits and starts there, but as as a result, we've built, a, I think, a, a really scalable, repeatable sales system. But in the early days. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to to advise folks to hire someone with an atypical background who has a lot of like flexibility of thinking. Right now, um, I, I mean, you're 138 people, um, and uh, I mean, how many how many customers have you got? Uh, are you you able to share? Yeah, we, we we've got north of 800 customers. Okay, uh, and uh, so so when we met like uh, a month ago, something that I found kind of really interesting was the fact that you really only kind of serve, um, you know, the North American market and you're, you're focused, uh, I think, you know, is the word uh, specifically uh, on that market. Um, and I found it super interesting because, I think, you know, the conversation was like, I, I guess, kind of like, why? You know, why are you not a, a global organization? Why are you not setting into Europe, uh, you know, emerging markets, um, you know, thinking globally. Uh, so the, I, I, I kind of want to get into that a, a little bit, you know, for, for the audience sake, because obviously sure. uh, we, we, we've had that conversation. So um, I guess kind of the first reason is, is why US or North, North America only. I'm assuming maybe Canada is uh, yep. as well. Yep. Yeah. Tell us we do America. About, yeah, tell yeah. us a little we, bit about this. We do, we do US and Canada. You know, I, I think it um, relates to sort of our philosophy as a business and philosophy of the product, which is, you know, let's, let's pick a subject area and focus on it. You know, we, we, we pick sales and revenue as the area that we're focusing on and sort of put the blinders on as a result, we're the best at doing just that. That's why we're the market leader, um, in the space that we occupy. I think the the same applies for the the, the market that we serve. So one of the benefits of being a, a small and nimble organization is, uh, and one of the reasons we're able to compete with you know the, the the product that is natively within Salesforce.com or others is if you're very broad if you're very have a very broad footprint um, you're not going to be as nimble. So for example, Salesforce has to focus on you know the the, the two person pizza shop and you know General Electric as customers. That's a pretty wide array of needs. Uh, we have the luxury of being able to focus on a specific segment of the market, and as a result be more efficient at serving those needs. So I think focus is a big sort of mantra here in general. Uh, it's not about what you're doing as, as much. It's just as much about what you're doing as what you're not doing. Uh, as far as the decision to be, you know, North, you know, U.S. and Canada focused, um, it's a huge market. So if we can't build a, a, a scale a company at scale here, uh, there may be something fundamentally wrong with our approach. So for, for, from one perspective, we don't have to go, that's one of the luxuries of being in the U.S. market. Like if you're an Israeli technology company, uh, your first market's going to be the U.S. because Israel is just not big enough as an example of, uh, uh, as a market. Uh, we don't have that problem. Actually, you know, I, I talked about Bessemer's uh, laws of cloud computing. I mean, th- they'll tell you right there, if you're not at, you know, a million MRR, you shouldn't even consider going international. Mm-hmm. And then after then, you, you've got, you have to decide, you know, what's the cost of, of defocusing uh, versus continuing to scale and how far, you know, down the path of diminishing returns or market saturation are you in the existing market? You know, we have, we have, you know, short of a thousand customers. Salesforce has, you know, whether it's 150, 175,000 customers, um, we're nowhere near saturation, even within just, just the Salesforce market, not to mention, you know, the ability to connect with other, other CRMs and serve other sales customers, uh, in the U S as well. 
And there are complexities of being international, you know, whether it's data domicile issues or other regulations, um, you know, latency and, and data centers. So having to, you know, run, run multiple operations. Um, I think one key differentiation that I would think about if, if I if I were making the decision of being, you know, U.S. focused or more global, or is um, how much interaction do you have with your customers? So if you're a completely e-commerce sales-driven model and e-commerce support where, you know, your customers can go and trial, buy the product, interact with support, you know, maybe they need to open a ticket, but by and large, it's going to be asynchronous and email-driven. Um, yeah, I think the argument to stay U.S.-focused for us, if that were the case, would, would be weaker. But we're a full-service shop where, you know, we do run a curated sales process. So even if you do a proof of concept with us, you're, you're typically talking, um, talking with, with, with a member of our sales or sales engineering team. You know, you can go to App Exchange and, and install our free apps and get a, get a feel for what it's like to, to benefit from Insight Squared without talking to us. But our sales process and our customer service process and our customer success process is uh, individualized, is personalized, is full service. So now you run into issues around time zones. Um, so, you know, I, I could keep adding to the list, but uh, look... We we do have customers uh, in, in Europe. Certain, certainly, we have we have customers uh, in and around in and around London. Uh, English language m- makes it a whole lot easier, so we don't mm-hmm. have to do as as much uh, regionalization. Although you know our software is capable of it, we we do multi currency. Uh, we can change our Z's to to S's uh, as needed, um, but. Um, and we're certainly getting a lot of pulls. So we, we, we have customers that, that are there that, that, you know, I recently got a note from someone who was at a customer and, uh, you know, said, Hey, can I, can I, can I bring you guys into Europe? Can we actually, can I, can I be the person that starts running sales for you here? Cause I'm that passionate about the product. So it's not that we have no interest or we don't think it's a huge market. It comes back to, to focus and limited resources. And, you know, you asked me earlier about funds raised. Well, we're, we're trying to be relatively uh, capital efficient. Um, and we always have to be thoughtful about wh- where and how we're going to make our investments. Okay, so it's, it's not necessarily a, uh, it's focus which has enabled you to grow to, to kind of where you are and sort of right now, uh, but not necessarily a decision for life just to stay US only because the North American market is so big. Yeah, God, no. I mean, there, there, are, uh, there are a lot of areas that we want to expand to. Um, and one of the biggest challenges for me is uh, sort of managing, managing that appetite. Uh, there are different uh, there are different industry verticals that we that we think that we could we could specialize in. There are more providers. Like you know, we, we launched a new product uh, last year called Slate, which lets us expand our use cases. So we have you know four primary use cases that we solve for around revenue. Uh, you know, rep management. How do you get the most out of your people? Pipeline management. How do you get the most out of this perishable asset that you have in your sales pipeline? Forecast accuracy and the credibility and, and planning ability that comes with that. And then planning and analysis, everything to do with QBRs and EBRs and board presentations and all of that. Uh, we want to expand uh, th- those use cases. We launched a product last year that lets customers expand that on their own. The product is called Slate. Uh, we're seeing pull into other non-sales categories as well. And it's, it's sort of an exercise in discipline of when, but it's, it, to your point, it's a question of when, not if. So uh, I know we're kind of running out of uh, uh, time a little bit here. So just kind of like two final uh, sort of questions, still sticking on the topic of focus. Um, firstly, your focus as a CEO in the early days was, you, you know, well, kind of doing a little bit of everything, but like leading the sales charge. 
Uh, now, you know, where is your focus? Uh, what are you doing, uh, like, on a weekly basis? What, what does it look like uh, for French Hill Mover? Yeah, I mean, the job, the job feels like it changes every six months. To, to some extent, it depends on where is the area of focus that we're trying to, to improve, uh, or maybe to the extent that we make that change on the leadership team in an area where I've got to, uh, I've got to dive in. The job has gotten, you know, one of the interesting things for me is I, I, I personally, like on an existential level, like to deliver product, like to deliver work product. And I don't, deliver any work product i'm like this this idea of uh general management is is very uh it's 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 a step removed so you know on a personal level i actually do do a lot of things so that uh, i i get that fixed you know i, I do woodworking I, I as you know i i run races so I, I'm, I'm doing something you know physical um but on, on a weekly basis you know I, i'm focusing on how do we get the company to the next level of scale and implementing the right cadences around you know strategy and performance management. You know, last year, I think we did a, a really much better job than we ever had before around uh, deliberating on the strategy, including what's not in the strategy, communicating it to the team and getting the team aligned to executing around that. Uh, this year, I'm trying to go one level deeper, which is now getting every department head and every manager of a function to do the same and, and do it on a, on a regular, rigorous basis. It's not quite OKRs, but it's in, in, that, in that same vein. Um, you know, to, to some extent, you know, one of the CEO's key jobs is uh, making sure you don't run out of money. So, you know, thinking about finances and how do we balance our appetite for investment uh, with our need for viability? And then what do we think about, you know, if and when we want to raise the next round of, of capital? That, that takes up uh, some of my mind share as well. And then uh, sort of, uh, you know, business development partnerships, uh, you know, we, we partner very closely with the team at Salesforce. Um, and, uh, you know, sp spent a fair bit of time there. We recently announced a partnership, uh, with LinkedIn where we're going to be pulling data from sales navigator and analyzing it, help you answer questions like, you know, does depth of connection correlate with win rate during a sales cycle? Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time on, on partnership discussions as well. Very cool. You, you kind of answered the second question a little bit where I, I was going to say, you know, how about the focus of the mind and keeping yourself sane as a CEO. And you mentioned sort of woodwork and running. And uh, earlier you mentioned to me that you're going to be running the Boston Marathon soon. Um, you, you know, uh, I guess, you know, being a CEO and running a large business like uh, uh, Insight Squared, although you call it a small business, uh, uh, you, you know, it does come with its sort of stresses. So like outside of woodwork and, and sort of running, are, the, are they kind of your main things? Yeah, I mean, I think one big change for me over the last couple of years is uh, my wife and I, have, we have two children, uh, and that certainly changed the dynamics, certainly changed the hours. And um, I, I think in general, from a personality perspective, I think I share this with a lot of other founders, I have a really hard time sitting still. Um, so uh, I wouldn't say I'm all the way manic, but I like to be always doing stuff. So I, I, I wake up early, I go right at it, uh, whether it's, you know, some form of physical activity, started doing triathlons last year. Um, I've learned that's a very ad ad addictive uh, <laughs> uh, sport. Um, as you mentioned, woodworking. So I go every Saturday morning uh, to a wood shop here in Jamaica Plain. And that's, that's, I think, a form of meditation as much as anything else. It's I'm not focused on, um, on the business. I'm not focused on anything other than making sure I keep all my fingers. And, um, and then I, I do try to, you know, wherever possible, uh, get home, uh, for dinner. So uh, I start pretty early, but I try to get home for dinner. And I think a, a key learning there has been, 
um, for all the folks who, who don't have kids at home, uh, enjoy the limitless amount of spare time you, you have right now because it, it should feel limitless compared to when you have kids. But um, by putting that th- those sort of time brackets on your time, I realized that before I had been a lot less efficient and a lot less disciplined. So now that time is more scarce, uh, I'm a lot more careful with how I spend it. And I realized, you know, uh, early, earlier in my career, I probably could have, uh, I probably could have compressed a lot of the work that I did if I had those, uh, those external pressures. So, um, I think it's a really, it's been a really big, uh, learning experience over these last four and a half years since, uh, since we had our first daughter, uh, of, of, jamming a lot into as little time as possible. And I personally get a lot of satisfaction, uh, you know, when I feel like I've had a day or a week where I could check a lot of boxes and I've accomplished a lot. Very cool. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to cheekily throw in sort of one final uh, uh, sort of question. Um, uh, so when, we, uh, when we met in December, you mentioned that uh, the names of the meeting rooms uh, at Insight Squared uh, are, are named after uh, members of a well-known uh, hip-hop uh, 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 group. So tell us a little bit uh, uh, about that. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, maybe a cool way to uh, uh, to sign out. Yeah. Uh, so they're all Wu Tang Clan. Uh, I think I'm sitting in genius right now. Uh, yeah. So we, we went through this exercise where we crowdsourced. You know, what what should the names of our first of our conference rooms in our first office be? And we got a lot of uh, suggestions. And then our CFO said, "Okay, you know, it's going to be names of streets in Cambridge. We're in Cambridge." or, um, you know, the names of our first customers. And uh, I like the second one, but it felt so corporate. And uh, I rarely use the sort of this play the CEO card and, and overrule things. But at the end of the day, it's not a democracy. And I, I made the call that we're <laughs> naming the rooms after members of the Wu-Tang Clan. There are many of them. So I think it's, it's a scalable. Uh, it's amazing how many members, you know, secondary and tertiary members of, of the Wu-Tang Clan there are. So it's a scalable naming convention. Is have you got old dirty bastard? Or uh, we actually have three. So we have ODB, Big Baby Jesus, and Dirt McGirt, who are okay. uh, his pseudonyms. <laughs> uh, may he may he rest in peace. Very cool, very cool. All right. So, um, well, Fred, look, you've you, you've been a fantastic guest. Really great, uh, great to speak to you uh, uh, again today. And so, you know, thank you very much for uh, taking your time to speak on the uh, the SaaS Revolution show. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show with Fred Shilmova, CEO and co-founder of Insight Squared, and have picked up valuable insights on how to stay focused, from the early ideas and prototypes all the way to going international and expanding your offering. Thanks for listening and for your continued support. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of minutes to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.